0: What do you get when you support The Incomparable in addition to the warm feeling in your heart that you're supporting some of your favorite podcasts? Well, we give you a lot of stuff is the answer. A whole lot of stuff, including just for this year. An entire season of Total Party Kill set in a post apocalyptic wasteland way before it gets released to regular people. A special three hour long Star Trek adventure of role playing featuring a whole bunch of people you know playing a Star Trek adventure with Scott McNulty as the game master. The Glenning Show of Glenning about Glenn with Tony Sindelar. Special episodes of lots of different podcasts and commentary tracks like this one, which we'll be posting soon. Oh man, the Jawa. Jawa. Mobile is dead. Oh, Java oh.
1: barbecue. Blast points, too accurate for yep.
0: sand too accurate. blast points. You're not letting it read on the screen. You say blast points, but I don't see blast points. It's just it's all charred. It's Only saying. Imperial Stormtroopers
2: could be this precise. <laughs> mm-hmm. Talk about an unreliable narrator. Yeah.
0: He's gone crazy from being in the desert for so long. He's a crazy old wizard. A wizard's just a crazy old man, Jason.
2: Well, unless he means precise, as in they actually hit the Jawas' mystery machine. I
0: like how long it takes Luke to run here. This shot is just a little <laughs> yeah. too long. Wait, stop. <laughs> Don't go! Uh, yep, yep, Come yep, back! Yep, You're start only your putting car. yourself in jeopardy. Where are my keys? He'll Where be my back? keys? Plus, you get access to bootleg recordings, so you can listen to our episodes as soon as we record them, before we've edited them and taken out all the awful things that we say. So much. Plus, again, warm feeling in your heart. Go to TheIncomparable.com slash members and sign up. We're not going to bug you about this for a year, but I want to bug you about it now. There's so much in there. You get access to all the past stuff. We've already done two other commentary tracks, Back to the Future and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Star Wars is next. There's going to be more stuff rolling out throughout the year. It's a lot of extra stuff. Plus, again, warm feeling in your heart please consider it, theincomparable.com slash members. There are monthly pledges. There are annual pledges. doesn't matter what you pledge uh, at any of the levels. You get all of the digital benefits. Check it out. And thank you for listening.
1: The Incomparable, number 401, April 2018.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. And in this episode, we're going to do something that we've been talking about for a while now. We talk about books on this podcast a lot from the very first episode. But how do you deal with one of the most renowned science fiction writers who is also a specialist in short stories? How do you approach that? And the answer was, wait more than 400 episodes until you figure it out. But in this episode, we have read my panel, a wonderful panel who has joined me, who I am about to introduce. We read six short stories by Harlan Ellison, and we're going to talk about them a little bit and his style, and he's an interesting guy, none of, whom, none of us know him personally. That's probably all for the best. Uh, let me introduce my panel, uh, and then I'll tell you what stories we read. Uh, Lisa Schmeiser is here.
2: Hello. Hello, I uh, made the mistake of reading Angry Candy, which is one of the short story anthologies. Um, While well, I was waiting to catch the plane that would take me back to view my father's body and plan his funeral, and in retrospect, that was probably a mistake. Oh,
0: yeah, <laughs> that that is. I really like that collection. Wow. We we read stories from all over his his collections, but I really like that collection. But his it's dark and sad.
2: <laughs> well, and the intro. Well, the introduction was right along the the, the emotional wavelength I was on anyway, and I think in some ways it was because so many of the stories are about rage and grief. Um. It was uncomfortably close to the bone, Hmm. which is also an excellent way to discuss Harlan Ellison, to describe Harlan (laughs) Ellison both as a person and as a writer. I was
0: going to say, Mm -hmm. it's kind of fitting. David J. Lohr is also here. David's been lobbying
3: for us to talk about Harlan Ellison for a very long time. And here we are, David. This this is true. I, I do have a mouth. I promise I won't scream. I'll just talk a lot. Okay, that's good. The screaming is really
0: bad for podcasts. Also, not having uh, yes. a mouth bad oh, yes. for podcasts. And yes.
3: I, I don't know I don't know how personally it counts, but but I have more than Glenn. I, I I did spend most of a day hanging out with with Harlan once, mm. and uh, it was kind of nuts and kind of fun. All right, interesting, intriguing. Uh, Scott McNulty is here, who's read lots of things, but
0: had you read any Harlan Ellison before you uh, prepped for this podcast? Uh, Harlan Ellison to me
4: is mostly a Star Trek writer. Star Trek episode <laughs> writer. <laughs> Boy, made him so mad wherever
0: he is. i so
4: angry. I believe the televised version of his script is far superior. See, I've even made his head yeah. is not explode
0: Yeah, but well, like, <laughs> the <introduced to> <laughs> Fontana who rewrote that script and never exactly. got credit for it. All right, well, it's good to have you here. It's
4: good to have me here as well.
5: <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> wherever you go, there you are. Erica Ensign is here as well. Hello. Hello. Yep, I am happy to be here. I am sad that one of the short stories that we read, spoilers, was not Harlan Ellison's uh, introduction to the pinnacle line of Doctor Who novelizations. <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah. going to, I'm going to now read you one short paragraph. I
0: remember this. I had, I had one of these that, that had Harlan <laughs> so Ellison. They, they so kept using I. it. They kept yep. using it. Yeah, yeah, He
5: says, Star Wars is adolescent nonsense. Close Encounters is Obscurantist Drivel, Star Trek can turn your brains to puree of bat guano, and the greatest science fiction series of all time is Doctor Who. And I'll take you all on, one by one, or all in a bunch, to back it up. Yeah,
0: He tells a little story about how somebody, is it like Roger Zelazny? Somebody says, basically, to gives him some tea and turns on the telly and says now we're going to sit here and watch this program now and that's how he discovered Doctor Who which is, that's yes. Not, and then not he bad. denied
5: that he ever wrote that, so I don't know. The jury's
0: out. <laughs> you know, did the check clear? Probably, so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think he'll be fine with it. I think he'll be fine mm-hmm. with it. Rias Hall is here. I don't know if you've ever been on the main show before, but of course you uh, are the co-host of the Villain Edit on this very network. Hello.
1: Hi. I read a lot of Harlan Ellison as a child, and this may have had a delete Curious effect on me
3: i <laughs> could do that yeah <laughs> same same
1: but it was a point where my father loved science fiction and i would read anything he brought home and i read a lot of ellison and it's made me the shipwreck of a woman that i am today <laughs> <laughs> it's i i had some
0: i had some realizations while uh while reading some ellison this time about how i um how much of his work I read in high school and college and how it had a like I had to spend like five years having not not read Ellison before my my writing seemed to stop just trying to be Harlan Ellison, which is. It's, yeah, I, it's, I, I also hadn't realized had that problem. Quite how much that style uh, uh, just kind of sinks in. Yeah. Um, chip Sutterth is also
6: here hi chip i am here to take the fire away from uh, scott mcnulty i'm drawing fire on my own position i know harlan ellison as the voice of zooty
0: uh yes i'm oh, babylon 5, the creative con- long-time creative consultant of babylon 5 as well and that's it
6: you're a complete ellison novice right yeah, I volunteered for this explicitly so I could finally read some Ellison. Yeah. I only knew him, uh, knew of him as Babylon Five creative consultant, as the uh, voice of that computer of in that episode, <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah. random psychop,
6: Randi- random random psychop, yeah. yeah. And also, um, I've heard so, I've I, I've read so much about him. That was things that were said about him by authors that I really respect and admire, like Neil Gaiman and Joe Straczynski, and also heard stories about, you know, his irascibility, his... Litigiousness? his, yeah. his his oh, his his yes. vendetta against aol and his omit- he's not wrong well he won that one didn't he
0: i guess in the end
6: in the long chain of history yeah. he comes out yeah. on top there and 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 also um reported misbehavior at oh, yeah, conventions yeah. and things like that so yeah. i was i was just i had no idea what i was going to get when i actually read the words the man wrote hmm.
1: Yeah, he's an author whose personality tends to almost overpower his literature, which is a shame because he's such a great writer. Right. But when you say Harlan Ellison, people have this knee-jerk reaction to him. And he's such
2: an excellent curator, too. I read Dangerous Visions and, again, yes. Dangerous Visions mm-hmm. on cross-country airplane flights. Apparently, I only read Harlan Ellison when I'm airborne, mm. and or, 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 or Harlan <laughs> Ellison-adjacent works. But when I read Dangerous Visions and, again, Dangerous Visions, his curatorial vision... Vision, or I should say his curatorial approach, why he picks stories, and um, what he's trying to accomplish when he edits and arranges them in a specific order is highly specific, and very well done. Like there's there's nothing you would ever excise or change about the way he does that. And to be both a great collector, and, and curator and to be it's it's almost contradictory because I have a feeling as a writer, he's just so profligate with his phrasing and his words. So you're like, how does that tight editorial sensibility exist with that same exuberant writer, you know? <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. I, yeah. I, I yeah. got to feel like he, a less talented writer, would not have as many people put up with him as has been the case because he sounds he sounds again he has people who are incredibly uh, loyal to him and people who say he's kind of an awful person to be around and he's threatened a lot of people with lawsuits but I mean he's so talented that I think that people are like yeah it's Harlan but right but then you you know but read his work look at his his editorial skills yeah
2: did he also benefit from coming along at the right time though because one of the things I wonder is he broke out He helped, um, you know, help define and break out a genre at a time when the culture was ripe for it. So would he have been would he have had the life of Harlan Ellison if he had been born 10 years earlier, or 10 years later, when the arc of um, sci fi and the arc of popular culture and those ideas was at a considerably different point than it was when he hopped on the continuum?
3: I don't think he would. I don't think he would. It was just Mm -hmm. the right moment for him. And and his his ability to move fluidly from short story to television and back and forth, um, that doesn't that doesn't happen so much these days either.
5: Yeah, honestly, I was always just. I mean, I liked his short stories but I liked his introductions to his short stories actually yes. better than many of the stories. And same thing with <laughs> Dangerous Visions. I mean, th- there are some fantastic stories in there, but I was reading it for his his intros to the stories.
0: Um, if you get a chance, you should read some of his, his. David's probably about to say the same thing, some of his other works then, because I've got, he wrote oh, yeah. a bunch of TV review columns in, a news- in newspapers in LA that got uh, compiled into The Glass Teat mm-hmm. and The Other Glass Teat. He did a- An mm-hmm. Edge in My Voice as a collection of his sort of like opinion op-ed piece kind of things and they're all great like he he's a good writer fiction or non-fiction his intros all of that stuff is is quite it's quite good so
3: it's and that's a harlan about harlan ellison's too. watching is a fantastic oh, yes. collection of movie reviews oh, yeah. Too. great yeah um, i've read that about three times because it's just so much fun i i will say as much as I love the introductions to all the stories, that might be part of why his personality overwhelms his work, exactly. is that every book has an introduction to every story, and some of them, when he's repackaged them, have a new introduction to the introduction to the story. <laughs> yep. It's like, let it go, Harlan. Write something else. It does allow that moment.
0: There's there's a story, and I forget what which story it is. You get all the way through the book, and one of the last stories in it, his introduction is... I have nothing to say about this story. <laughs> yes. and it's a moment where you're like, oh, my God, what is in this what, story? What just happened?
1: It's the first time ever. Yeah.
6: <laughs> I, I'm fascinated hearing you all say this because the outsized personality of Harlan Ellison prevented me from reading his stuff for 40 odd years.
3: Mm. I know, I know so many people who say exactly the same thing. Well, and there are a lot of people, I mean, so much so much fiction
0: reading in our culture has become novel reading too. And that's yes. the other part of this is <laughs> yeah. short stories are still a, a big part. Short stories and novellas are a big part of the science fiction community in terms of the Hugo awards and the Nebula awards and things like that. But in the larger culture, I mean, you get trained to read novels and then you get a short story collection. And you're like, what is this? And, and so I, I, I would think that pushes a lot of people away too. Like Chip, if we had a go-to novel that was like the definitive Harlan Ellison novel, we could probably put that in front front of you, but we don't. And so what do what do I do? In the end I pick six random stories and point you to go find them on the internet or in your local bookstore and don't sue us Harlan.
3: And uh everybody buy Harlan's books. And the things (laughs) the things that are novels are close to them are really not his best work. Right, right. No. No. A lot of them are early work. And short story is his form. Yeah.
1: He excels in the short form and one of the things about that is that there's not much of a market for that anymore. There's not like right. magazines that just exist to publish short works and it's kind of a shame. Well there are, but we're few and far between. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, that's what I mean. There are, but yeah. Yeah,
0: there was a time when Harlan Ellison could sell a story a year to Playboy and mm-hmm. yeah. that was yeah. a good rate. <laughs> <laughs> and that that kind of thing doesn't exist anymore.
2: Not that he was ever showing up in the pages of Good Housekeeping, but, you know, you're talking about publishing in general. And short fiction was a mainstay of almost every type of magazine that wasn't a news magazine. And that's shifted pretty sharply now. Yeah. So, yeah. I also wonder if uh, with, with Harlan Ellison... At this point, he's almost like Frank Sinatra was in the latter years, where people know the idea of Frank Sinatra, and there's this collection of anecdotes and iconography and traits.
0: Ironically... Um, of course. Frank
2: Sinatra has a cold, yes. <laughs> yes,
0: in, 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 in the famous Gay Talese, uh, Frank Sinatra has a cold, uh, Harlan Ellison appears. <laughs> and is as and a goes toe-to-toe to
2: toe with Sinatra. With Sinatra, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I'm thinking of, like, Sinatra in the 90s, when they're like, oh, look, it's all blue eyes, and this old man comes out and croaks a few bars of Fly Me to the Moon, and everyone's like, it's the chairman of the board! And, yeah. like, if you're under 40-year-old, what? Who's, <laughs> and, who's this guy? And, um, And I think that with Harlan Ellison, there might be a little bit of that where they're like, oh, he's cranky. Oh, he gripped Connie Willis. And and, oh, he's that guy who did that thing. And, you know... Maybe that's true, but they don't go back and they don't read the stuff that he wrote in the 60s, which is incredibly reactionary to the the the, the current events of the time and the pop culture of the time and how sharp and how forward-looking it is. Like, they, they miss that he had that perception at that time. He, there's a reason he's got the reputation, you know? That's true.
3: One of the most amazing things I've seen is when I was at a con in New York, and he gets up and people he was doing a book signing for first i mean he had a couple of panel things and whatever uh but he was doing this book signing and as people would come up there were certain editions of certain books that he would look and he'd go oh this is a book club edition who sold you this i have a lawsuit outstanding against this company you can't have i have to take this copy i'll i'll get you another copy that's a legitimate copy but which which bookseller on the floor did you buy this from i'm going to talk to them after we're done boy it's like that's wow. Exhausting. Okay, all but right. he had he had this little notebook with all these you know serial numbers and printing editions and Harlan companies Nelson, and I was everybody. Like,
2: an <laughs> enemies Nelson. list. An actual notebook with his enemies list. I right? love
3: that detail. But it's as, but aside from that, <laughs> aside from that, he was he was a blast. Yeah,
1: day. I've I've met him several times and he's always been really fun. Yeah,
3: yeah,
0: yeah. I remember seeing him on um on late night talk shows. I was too oh, young Tom to Snyder see him on Tom him all the time. Snyder mm-hmm. in the on the NBC days, but he was on. I think John Barber had a show for a little while on ABC that he was on multiple times, and then when Tom Snyder came back to CBS, I think he was on there. Yes, that's where I first yeah. saw him. And of course, yeah. um, my other big introduction to him beyond sitting on the edge of forever, which had you know was the you know everybody consensus best Star, Star Trek episode ever, and had his name on it. And now we know that it was a rewrite by. Uh, Dorothy Fontana um, which he didn't know for years who actually did it and it turns out it was his friend Dorothy Fontana
3: and he's like no Dorothy (laughs) because she she knew better than to admit it
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, it, it's the it, the original is is a good screenplay, and it's not Star Trek. And she made it, tried to keep as much of it as she could, and make it Star Trek. And she was very yeah. very successful at that. But but the other thing that got him in my brain was the new Twilight Zone in the mid eighties, which the right. opening episode of which um, one of the two stories was an adaptation of Shatter Day, starring Bruce Willis. And then very soon thereafter, they I think for their second season, maybe it was like, or it was
3: no, it was it was the seventh or eighth episode. Uh, the first season the with,
0: first season was paladin of the lost hour mm-hmm. with um, danny k and it was one of danny k's last performances I remember too and it was that.
1: amazing yeah. Wow.
0: yeah this episode of the incomparable is brought to you in part by pingdom pingdom is awesome because it helps keep your site and the sites you love including our site online pingdom monitors your site so you don't have to and it gives you real-time feedback so you always know exactly what's going on let's be real Stuff breaks on the internet all the time. You've seen it. You've seen it with sites that you visit. You've probably seen it with sites that you manage yourself. Every month, Pingdom detects about 13 million different outages. Think about that. That's more than 400,000 outages every day. Things, Hundreds of thousands of things are breaking on the internet all the time whether you've got a small website or a complete website infrastructure with a whole bunch of moving pieces. Either way, you want to know that your site is available and performing well. You don't want it to be down. You don't want to not not know that it's happening until somebody kind of annoyingly says, "What is your site down or is it just me? And you're like, oh no. And then your weekend is ruined or whatever it is, right? Pingdom will ping you and say something is going wrong. And then you can deal with it or get somebody to deal with it immediately before people start complaining. You'll know. You'll be the first to know. all pingdom needs is the url that you want to monitor and they take care of the rest and they will alert you i had my server went down uh, a couple weeks ago and i got the alert and then i also discovered that fortunately the person who maintains our server my dear friend greg noss was himself breaking the server While installing something And it was all okay He was already on it It was fine But I knew immediately Before Greg even said uh, The site's not working Because of Pingdom Go to Pingdom.com right now And you'll get a 14 day free trial You can see You can even try to break your site And see what happens If you really want to do that You could do that No credit card required 14 days of monitoring You'll see what happens with Pingdom And when you do sign up Use this offer code Snell That's my last name and you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting The Incomparable. Let's talk about the... We've talked about the man a little bit. Let's talk about the work, and I'll explain to the listeners what we uh, what we read. Um... I guess I could give you a spoiler alert here, but these are from all over the place. I would recommend, and maybe we'll do this at the end, that you that you find a good Harlan Ellison uh, short story collection, or you can get The Essential Ellison, which is a giant tome of his work. <laughs> it's got dozens of his short stories in it. There are two editions of that, because they did an updated edition. You can get one pretty cheap on Amazon, I gotta say. Scott, you got one of those, right? For like, I don't know, what, 15 bucks on Amazon? 12 bucks on Amazon? I did and it didn't have half the stories we read. No, that's true. It didn't. But it, but it it, did have a bunch of stories in it. And it's a tome. It's very large. You could smash a bug with it. You, you could smash many bugs with it. You could
3: smash an otter with it. Yeah. You could probably smash Harlan Ellison with it. Yeah. He's old. If you're reading it in bed... Uh, it really hurts when it falls on your nose because you fell asleep reading yeah. it. Don't do that. Mm. That's, har- that's Harlan, that the author, punching
0: you in the nose for falling asleep during his writing. How dare you? That's what's happening right there. Right. Wake up! And, All right. and for buying a used copy. So what we did was we, yeah, that's true. That's true. Don't do that. You're you're in the penalty box now, Scott. Who sold you this? Mm-hmm. Amazon. Um, <laughs> we we read six six stories, and the the um the reason that I picked these six is I wanted a little bit of a time spread, and I also These are some of his most... Uh, awarded or lauded stories, and so I thought that that would be a good way to do it. So we read "Repent, Harlequin," said the TikTok man from 1965, which won the Hugo and Nebula award, and is from the collection "Pain God and Other Delusions." We read "I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream" from 1967. That won the Hugo award and was collected in a book with that title. We read "The Beats," "The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World" from 1969, which won the Hugo award and was also collected in a book with that as its title. We read "Jefty is Five from 1977, which was collected in Shatterday, the first book of his that I bought, and it won the Hugo and the Nebula for short story. We read Paladin of the Lost Hour from 1986, which was collected in Angry Candy, aforementioned Angry Candy, which was uh, maybe the third Harlan Ellison book I bought. That won the Hugo for Best Novelette and we read 1991's the man who rode christopher columbus ashore which appeared in his slippage collection and was also anthologized in the best american short stories anthology of that year and uh so th- that's that's the reading list and I suppose the best way to do it with six guests and six stories is that each of mm-hmm. you has been assigned to No, that's not it. Yes. Oh, oh, we will go through them. Uh, we will go through them one by one. I think is probably how we should do this. And then I will ask people for their for, for their feelings. Yes, sequential counting. Basically, I've invented counting. Congratulations <laughs> to me for inventing counting. Let's start with "Repent, Harlequin." said the TikTok man, and talk about that a little. A little bit nineteen sixty five. We'll just go in chronological order here. Um, and for this one I'm gonna say, David, why don't you get us started? What did you th- what do you what are your thoughts about repent Harlequin
3: said the TikTok man? It is a fascinating dystopian future story. Not well not really dystopian future, but dystopian world. Um where Uh, As someone who uh, occasionally is late, uh, is terrifying to me, because uh, when you are late in this world, uh, that is a crime against humanity, and you are punished by having minutes. The the equivalent number of minutes that you are late are removed from your life. Yes, And uh, the TikTok man is the one who decides this. And the Harlequin is a a figure, an agent of chaos, shall we say. Indeed. perpetually late and and causing all kinds of mischief he's
0: basically a a rebel he's sort of a terrorist he's a he's a crusader against the idea of people being on time in this society so he's he's a you know yeah he's an outlandish figure who's rebelling against this society where time is locked down
1: i feel like the harlequin is very much an author insert character
2: i think that oh, that's yeah. a lot of how harlan oh. sees himself is <laughs> mm-hmm. as that harlequin
3: I'm, I'm sure that's where the word occurred to him
2: Uh huh. Mm. so i'm reading wrinkle in t- a wrinkle in time to my daughter right now we're reading it loud we just got to the the, the chapter the man with the red eyes where you find out what the deal is with camazots and the central central intelligence agency and the um Phraseology that Ellison uses throughout this story is really reminiscent of the imagery that Langle evokes all the way through Camazotz. Um The whole time when I was reading and rereading the story, I was like, this is very familiar because it's a lot like what Madeline Langle had written three years prior. But the, what you see there is this, this fear of a mechanized society. You see a fear of big data. You see a fear hmm. of being held accountable to a government that has all this data on you. And hmm. I think this was one of the points where people were just beginning to realize what computers were going to mean. It meant faster data processing and faster data retrieval. And so the idea that you, you couldn't comfortably slip through the cracks or delay the inevitable, like that was that, that those ideas were closing in on them and This is, uh, this is kind of an extrapolation of that, um, I have a feeling if he wrote it today, there would probably be something in there about your browser history and your mobile (laughs) app tracking devices. Mm. (laughs) The mortality is not the issue here. What's the issue is the constant surveillance and the accountability. And and, uh, the Harlequin is constantly subverting both of those with the idea that, no, I don't have to be under surveillance. I'm accountable to nobody, and I want other people to join me in shaking off the system.
0: The Um, story features uh, one character who discovers that his time has run out and he flees into the woods like hundreds of miles away and the point that the story makes is that the tiktok man flips the switch and blanks and his cardio plate and he drops dead mm-hmm. and that's it like yeah. you can't run you can't escape the ruling of the tiktok man
2: well the other the other thing that the thing that i thought was interesting and in per I don't know if he meant for this to be a commentary on um communal living or or or, or the or, or the Soviet Union or something like that but when that character gets the death notice in the mail you get it from the perspective of his wife and she thinks don't let it be me let it be my husband let it be one of the kids but don't make it me and I think when you hmm. see somebody who you see that perversion of the natural parent child state where you know you're supposed to you know Fling your, You're supposed to fling yourself in front of the train for your kids. And instead she's like, nope, I really hope that the central computer kills one of my kids before it gets to me. Um, you know, I think when you see this, this corrosion of relationships and the, 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 the cold selfish fear at the heart of every character, except for the Harlequin, I think that's when it shows how corrosive this society is because it's not centered around people and relationships. It's centered around, being subjects to this mysterious TikTok man and his ability to kill you with a switch.
0: Yes, and of course, more broadly, it's all of us uh, being a slave to to time and to society's. Yeah. You know, you be at work at nine a.m. I mean, that that clearly is part of what is going on here. Is we all have to follow the clock and be on time, and it's it is a uh, not it's not necessarily the the end of the world like it is in this story, but it is like if you can't be there on time, you're going to have a hard time in life it is you know right it's
6: it's definitely yeah. uh it, it's definitely the freelancer raging against the salary <laughs> men <laughs> uh, but uh, reading it 50 53 years after publication um you know one of the things that i was thinking about was when this was when this was written and published time was still relative. You know, you wind up your clock, but unless you happen to be somewhere where there's an atomic clock go- set up or on, you know, everybody's clocks are differently. Everybody's running a little bit late. It's all really arbitrary. It's never arbitrary for any of us anymore. No. We've got our time pieces synchronized with global positioning satellites. The TikTok we know is with
0: us always. All
6: yes. the time. We know exactly <laughs> what time it is and we know exactly how late we are and everybody knows it.
2: I have difficulty reading maps. And before when I got lost, when I talked to people and coordinate with them, I would say, okay, there may be a five or ten minute window on either side, because I will go down a side street and get lost and just chill. I promise I'll be there within a five to ten minute window. And it was it was fine. I don't get lost now because I have a phone and a, a watch that buzz me constantly and tell me which way to turn. But what I've also noticed is that people are really not copacetic with folks who who aren't on time anymore. And then that's when the texts start and that's when the phone calls start. Right. And it's, um in many ways, I think it's harder than it was when time was less precise. And it's interesting that this, and again, Harlan Ellison extrapolated that, which was also... I thought a very interesting perception.
0: Well, and and you've yeah. got to think about the fact something one of the things that blew my mind more than anything else in college. I probably mm-hmm. mentioned this on like, one of the past 400 odd episodes of the Incomparable, but was the <laughs> idea that before uh, relatively recently, like time yeah. and con- like everybody agreeing that this was a particular time or even the co- concept of like what time hour and minute it was didn't exist like it was all just like I'll see you in the afternoon I'll see you after the sun when the sun is high in the sky or when the, mm-hmm. the sun is low in the in, in the west or whatever it was and it wasn't until um you know a few hundred years ago that clocks with any precision at all were built and that the people would try to match them up and all of these things mm-hmm. and, and and so when I read any story about this it's it's what's great about it is it's a, an important reminder that like this entire concept of time and that is all sharing a time is entirely invented. By us, it is. It mm-hmm. is something that is. Is people have built a system to do this. I also wanted to mention one of the things that I, I um, we read a lot of dystopian books on this podcast and uh, one of the things Lisa knows what, I, what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like in this story <laughs> is that it's a short story. Harlan Ellison knows that everybody knows about 1984 even if they haven't mm-hmm. read it, they know about it. And so rather than kind of draw this picture where uh, the character of uh, Everett C. Marm who was the Harlequin mm-hmm. revealed um, that he's tortured and tormented. By the 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 TikTok man's goons, um, the story literally says they worked him over. It was just like what they did to Winston Smith in 1984, which is a book none of them <laughs> knew about, but the <laughs> techniques are really quite ancient.
2: But you know <laughs> that literally everybody read that went, oh God, Rat Cage, <laughs> right?
0: right? Right. He doesn't need yeah. because that was that like,
2: was the was, first was, place I went was they Rat gave Cage. Him the old oh, 1984.
0: Jesus. That's what they did, uh, which I like. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a short story writer. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. it's like that's all I need to say here.
2: <laughs> what I love is he. Drops all these terms and never bothers to explain them. And it's it's such a great way of pointing out how alien the culture is and what has been kept. And you can kind of extrapolate some of the some of the slang, but not a lot of it, which I I love because it's a great way to world build without answering too many questions.
6: (laughs) Right. And it is such a great contrast. You know, the precision. You've got to be on time. You've got to be on time. You're you're sort of reading about a world where everything is so precise, but you're doing it with words that mean nothing. The topware, the yeah. heart meat core, the TikTok man, the. What 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 was this slip skitter? There's a fantastic paragraph that I think is
0: a great uh, writing little little stylistic technique that he that he uses. There's the one about the jelly beans, and that's not the one I'm talking yes. about. It, th- that's this that's is it. this is the one that is it is uh, great because it mixes all that terminology. It's, they use dogs, they use probes, they use cardioplate plate cross offs, they use teepers. they use bribery, they use stick tights, they used intimidation, they used torment, they used torture, they used finks, they used cops, they used search and seizure, they used phaleron. <laughs> what? Oh
6: my they, god. He's the Mirror Universe, Dr. Seuss. (laughs) He really is. That paragraph,
0: after this long list of things, that paragraph ends with, they used Raoul Mitgong, but he didn't help much. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, what did you think of this one? Uh,
4: I uh, think that Harlan Ellison may not be a happy man. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is what I have gathered. Do you think he might have problems with deadlines? Repent, Allison said the editor. Uh, mm-hmm. He he seems angry
4: and he seems nostalgic for a time that perhaps never existed. <laughs> is uh, what I have gleaned from reading six of his stories. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Although the thing that, uh, the other thing that I gleaned is that he's a very talented writer, which is, um, kind of annoying, uh, because <laughs> of, uh, how horrible not apparently the first, he is. But, not it's, the first to say that. you know, he has, uh, and so this, this story, I didn't, when I uh, did my little introduction, I said I didn't know anything about Harlan Ellison other than his Star Trek work, which is not quite true. I knew two other things. I knew two phrases, uh, I have no mouth and yet I must scream and repent Harlan said the TikTok man. I knew those things, they made no sense to me, uh, but I knew that Harlan Ellison wrote them, uh, and they stuck with me because they are so memorable. Uh, and having read uh, this, this story, I can, uh, it's going to, the context helps a lot, I suppose. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean these are these are fine short stories, and it makes me think maybe I should read some more short stories. I'm probably
0: not going to, but maybe maybe I should. Good news is you have a <laughs> large book that you can use to either swat flies or just read more of those stories. There are so many of them in that you, book. There, you can
3: prop are. up a table that's like mm-hmm. several inches too short yes, in one leg, yes, like, like five inches. That's true.
0: This episode of the Incomparable is brought to you in part by our friends at Hover. Building your online identity has never been more important with Hover. You find the domain that shows the world who you are and what you're passionate about. Now, I have a lot of domains. Some of them are silly and dumb, like SnellZone. Yes, Snell.zone, I own that. Uh, Snellworld.com, I own that. Uh, let's see, recently on Total Party Kill, we made a bunch of jokes about kankmilk.com. So I bought Cankmilk.com on Hover while we were playing for a very low price and set it to automatically redirect to Total Party Kill. It was easy. And I just, I have an idea. I think, hey, I could actually, I'm joking about that domain. I could own that domain. And uh, that's it. But also for serious stuff like sixcolors.com. All of my Six Colors domains are managed at Hover. I registered a whole bunch of related domains for Six Colors while I was negotiating with the owner of the main domain, and all of those are reserved through uh, through Hover. When I was leaving my old job and I wanted to post an announcement somewhere, I wanted a simple domain that I could point people to and say, you can find out more here, and I wasn't ready to launch Six Colors yet. So I registered Snellworld.com at Hover. That was, that was super easy to do. Uh, the Incomparable.com domain... And incomparable.co, which is another domain that just redirects, all managed at hover. There are so many different ways from serious to silly, from redirects to identities that you're relying on as part of your brand as part of what you do every day for your job so many different ways that domains fit into it and hover lets you keep your domains separate from your hosting i don't actually host my domains at hover hover handles the domains and i have a different company where i'm running my server so you don't have to get stuck with a hosting service you can move your hosting and the domain stuff is all solid and uh, you don't have to mix and match which is very nice they have best in class customer support they have a hover connect feature that lets you Connect your domain name to many different website builders with a few clicks. There's free Whois privacy, so nobody sleazy is going to get your information. And more than 400 domain name extensions to choose from, including all the classics and ones like... Zone for Snell.Zone, which I use, and there are plenty of other fun ones out there, too. If you want to show the world what you're passionate about, Hover is the way to get there to make that first step. Hover.com slash incomparable now. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you, Hover, for supporting the incomparable.
2: I do want to lay down an idea that I'm, uh, that I'm that is manifest here, and it doesn't quite um, follow through in all the stories, but does with I Have No Mouth, which we'll get to eventually, Um he seems to take a rather dim view of the distaff uh, gender, as it were, like the women in this story yeah. are, are, well, yeah. yeah, no, and I, I read through some, I, so I read the six short stories that, that Jason assigned us, and um, then as I pull up my Kindle with the collection of Harlan Ellison stories that I of course paid for. Um, uh-huh. I also read Shatterday and approaching oblivion. And by the end of them, I was, I, I was racking my brain to think if he had ever featured a woman who wasn't either a sex object, a stand in for fear of mortality, a stand in for the perfidy of man, a stand in for the duplicity of the human character, um, a brainless moron, a plot device. Um, it's it's a little disturbing did to you read find this any? and no no, <laughs> no I did not <laughs> I didn't think so. and I have to say it's a little disquieting to read somebody who's so lauded and mm. watch through the prism of his prolific output that that talent has somehow never extended to thinking of or depicting women as anything other than an object with which to complicate a man's world.
3: Well, and I'm vaguely curious, because I know he was married several times, and he's had all kinds of trouble with women.
2: He's on wife number five, and he makes much of the fact that when he went to Arizona for a con back in the 70s, he stayed in a trailer and refused to spend money because he was a supporter of the ERA, which, you know, hooray, thank you, but... And I realize people are complicated and have contradictions. It is, however, really unnerving to keep reading story after story and see complex characters, all of whom happen to have a a very specific gender representation in common.
3: What what I was going to get to is that now he's he's been in this this last marriage for several decades now, and he's supposedly much happier. And I'm curious now to look look back at his stories and see if that shifted once he was in in a nice, stable relationship. I don't know. I don't know.
6: I mean, the the collection that we've read, which is the extent of my Ellison uh, reading over the years, I mean, these are stories where men are the default. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
2: Well, the men are the people. That's it. Yeah. You know.
6: Yeah, yeah.
0: That's
2: in, it, end it, of story. <laughs> in looking
0: in looking at it now, um, I'm I'm curious. So, so that's I. I think Lisa makes a good point. I'm curious, uh, Rias and uh, and Erica, if you know, in reading it now, did you have that same? Did that same thing strike you? Was that always there with Ellison, or is it more noticeable now? Because you've both read a lot of his stuff, but it is it is almost always about uh you know a man's view of something in his work. That's just I think that's always been Ellison. What do you think?
1: I agree. Now it's more pronounced to me because I'm more aware of that. Um, when I was younger, I read a lot of other science fiction authors, and it seemed like male was always the default. I mean, I loved H.P. Lovecraft, and Poe. oh, girl, I read a lot and- of Piers
2: Anthony, so I feel you there, <laughs> oh, sweetie. Oh, oh my <laughs> god! Yeah, I
1: also read a lot of Piers Anthony. <laughs> so did
2: <'Cause>, I. <laughs> yes, the Zamp <Xanth> series. <laughs> oh, oh my god, Bio of a Space tart Yeah, and I, oh, I remember. No. Yes, yes. yes. Mm. So yeah. Like like Graia says, you know, when it's younger it's 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 like smog when it's ambient and it takes a while to notice it, I think. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, because,
1: yeah. especially in that era there wasn't a lot of awesome female characters in science fiction. There was what like, Jarel of Jory and uh maybe a couple people that showed up in other stories, but
5: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Same thing for me. I mean, I discovered—I I don't actually remember when it was that I saw him on the Late Late Show, and my dad was like, "What? You've never heard of him?" Oh, go to the basement. So I did. And, mm-hmm. Oh, look! Here's <laughs> here are all these stories. And, oh, go to the Harlan
0: Ellison <laughs> is in the basement, in the basement right basement. <laughs> now. We keep him tied up down there. He's writing a short story.
5: <laughs> <laughs> he is. He is. Yep, in front of the window. Uh, <laughs> but but so I I started reading his stuff. Yeah, you know, way way back before my sort of feminist awakening. And yeah, yeah, it was really very much like in college and my feminist awakening was super late. Um, So college and shortly after that. And and yeah, even though I had found a lot of stuff that I liked with female protagonists, that was mostly on the fantasy side of things. Science fiction still really seemed to be primarily dude oriented uh-huh. <laughs> so it didn't stick out to me then and and honestly i think my tastes overall have have just shifted i mean it, it reading these stories this one in particular like it's very very well written he's great with language but it it none of these really well almost none of them brought me any joy <laughs> they just yeah it was just it was reading it was reading pretty words that were put together nicely but there was uh, I didn't really derive much in the way of pleasure except for, you know, occasionally a sentence here and there that's like, oh, that's nicely nicely put together. You but, can
2: appreciate the craftsmanship, but it leaves you yeah, yeah leaves mm-hmm. you sort of distant from it. Also, yeah. given, yep.
0: you know, from the perspective of 40, 50 years later, um, I mentioned that he, you know, had stories published in Playboy uh, multiple mm-hmm. times. He and you can see it in his introductions and you can certainly see it in his fiction from this era. You know, he's a counterculture guy in the 60s, but he's also a you know, liberated sexual politics guy, but in yeah. the way of, you know, of something like Playboy, where it's like, isn't it great mm-hmm. that we can all be open about sex? And as a man, I, you know, I'm going to write about sex openly and isn't that transgressive, but it's also basically, uh, you know, these are all from the perspective of a man um, and a man's perspective about sexual Mm -hmm. politics and sexual relationships and you see it in yeah you see it in his work he has he has stories that are literally just about about sex. Mm-hmm. And they are yeah. also, ma- you know, they're they're about men having sex. There is literally a story where there are aliens that are discovered that are just vaginas. Oh, I
2: had a graphic ni- oh, novel. I didn't realize so. it was about that when I bought uh. it off Amazon. <laughs> and then I opened it and I was like, oh my god! <laughs> I'm a, I was a married woman and I was like, oh Jesus, someone yeah. sees me reading this. But to, to ping pong off of what you said, Jason, um, I recently read uh, a group memoir by a bunch of hippies who had been at the Morningstar commune in the 1960s. And the um, and of course, they made much of sexual liberation, but there's this hair-raising passage in there where they talk about how they had a convicted serial rapist living on the commune with them, and he actually assaulted and raped several of the women. The, the attitude was, well, we're all sexually liberated. Rape is a thing that happens. Oh, well. <sighs> and to me, that basically encapsulates the so-called sexual revolution. It helped it helped break down a lot of the social boundaries and expectations in a lot of ways, but it didn't elevate the personhood of some of the people these men were having sex with. And um when you read Allison's stories, especially one in um I think it's the Shatterday collection called All the Birds Come Home to Roost. Yep. Where oh, that a man Yeah, yeah. Where he's like, Oh, <laughs> oh that mm-hmm. one.
1: Yeah, and, that's know, we're, very much a polemic, almost a polemic against every woman he's ever met. It's just yeah.
2: Yeah. And what's funny is the introduction to that he talks movingly and lovingly about the woman who edited it for him. And, mm-hmm. and, and he's like, No, she's made this story great. She's a fine mind. And I thought, and the editor in question actually died in an airplane crash. But I thought I would love to get her view on what it was like to have that story across my desk and then be like, OK, I have to turn this into something that can actually run in my magazine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story in
1: Strange Wine called Croatoan, oh, where God, a woman yes. has an abortion and kind of force, and he ends up going down in the sewer because she's hysterical and she insists that he bring the baby back. And he finds this entire society of aborted babies that have grown up in our Writing Albi- albino dinosaur or albino um, uh, alligators. alligators.
2: <laughs> and it's, it's, it's insane. insane. It is yeah, just no. insane. It's <laughs> my only reaction is just to laugh hysterically like this this actually like made its way into the world. Someone was like oh here we go I'll write a story about you. it's beautifully written. Part of the brilliance about
0: him is his style and part of it is that he just has he he has no filter. He has these completely wild ideas. And where somebody else would be like, you know, this doesn't make sense. He's like, no, that's a really interesting image. I'm just going to put it in there. And uh, several of the stories we read for this are essentially like paragraph mini stories strung together that have wild ideas in them. And he gets away with it because he's got style and because they are such wild ideas. But that, you know... That, that is definitely one of the things that he's, he's very good at, is these things that you're like, what are you doing? What is this thing you've invented? And he just, yeah. Uh, yeah
1: that's very much how I feel about both the beast that shouted love and the man who rode Columbus ashore it's like a bunch of little short ideas kind of strung together in a story manner
2: and then kind of here's the ending
1: Mm -hmm.
5: yep yeah it was kind
2: of like look at me look at how clever Mm -hmm. I am we're jumping through time did I blow your mind yet yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah. in both of of them too I was surprised that they didn't they didn't link up in some way that he didn't make reference maybe he did Um, okay let's (laughs) let's, we'll we'll get there in a minute but uh, let's at least touch so I I Have No Mouth, I Must Scream is from 1967, and it is a story about how an AI has taken over the world and killed everybody on Earth, and it's all alone except for the, what, five people that it's it's decided Mm -hmm. to keep alive eternally, and it's been more than 100 years, and torture because it hates people for having created it and the and the the ai is either called am if you would like to say it out loud or am because it's i think therefore i am um and it is sadistic and inhuman obviously and uh you've got these five characters four men and one woman who have all been kind of Altered in various ways and are put in horrible situations and tortured and the story climaxes in one of the characters uh seizing a brief moment of uh, of distraction to murder the other characters so that they don't have to be tortured anymore and then he has condemned himself to eternal torment him
6: and the machine
0: forever and it's a little dark is what I'm saying it's a little bit so dark what you're saying
6: is this bit. is a rejected plot for the good place right <laughs> where they were visiting it's... the bad place. It's
1: Mm -hmm. the
3: feel-good story of 1968. It's a no. very, very bad place.
1: That one I chose not to reread. I had read it several times before, but I was just like, I can't face that right it, now. It, it had
0: been a while for me, <laughs> and, yeah. And I and and so reading it back, I'm like, oh yeah. And of course, like, like we said for some of the other stuff, it's like the some of the um some of the sexual politics in it is extremely unpleasant because what the AI oh. does to the one woman,
2: Lobotomizes it, her and turns her into a nymphomaniac.
0: Exactly right. It's all about her as a as a sexual
2: uh, device. Oh, and to make it even more troubling. She's the only black character in the story too. Yeah. So so there's yep. a there's a real like one two punch there, Ellison. And <laughs> yeah, I thought I had read this story and then I read it and I was like, "Oh,
5: no, I had mm. not. I had actually, I think I had gotten it mixed up with uh, The beast That Shouted Love, which I, th- I thought I hadn't read that one, but it turns out I had. So I just got the, 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 the those titles that are very memorable titles. Somehow I mixed them up and put them on the wrong stories. Um, so I was, that was one, uh, I ha- Have No Mouth That I Must Scream is one that I was actually really glad to read because I feel like I had been missing out. Now, I also will not be going back to it anytime soon, maybe not ever, <laughs> but I'm super happy that I read it. So thanks for the opportunity. Maybe guys like you've,
2: like you've 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 stacked another book in the sci-fi well, canon and you're like read yeah, no right. Yeah. right
0: it's 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 brutal uh,
5: st- sci-fi or horror yeah it's brutal
2: it, yes. i think it's incredibly and effective b- i think both. i think yeah. there is
0: something to be said for some, some something like i have no mouth and i'm a scream i read it and i think well if you're going to do a story about this I guess best not to pull any punches and it doesn't and it's mm-hmm. awful mm-hmm. and yeah, it's not a pleasant thing because it is literally like I was squirming uh, and mm-hmm. I've read it before oh, yeah. because it is, it's literally what if there was an all-powerful being, basically it, it, AM is God, it can do mm-hmm. anything it can keep you alive forever and it hates you and mm-hmm. and these people are just its playthings and it that plays out for several thousand words,
3: it's not
1: not,
0: and not it's, fun it's
3: one of the most amazing uh, amazing portrayal of despair and you you feel it too yeah it's not just it's not just oh i'm reading a story i mean you feel that which is kind of amazing
6: if, if you want an allegory for like a calvinist vision of what hell is like uh you know that this is it yeah. right there right yeah. here i have never i've never it's been a very very long time since i've read anything that just sort of put me in that ghastly, hopeless, you know, we've been here for 109 years and it keeps getting bad because we are being utterly taunted by this omnipotent force, you know. Um, this is one of the this is one of the six stories that I found to be the most powerful and the most depressing and uh, bleak just all in one I think he's I think he's kind of at the height of his powers here and I kind of wish he was using his powers for
3: good but then he wouldn't be a Harlan Ellison
1: (laughs) (laughs) if he used his powers for good he'd be Ray Bradbury
3: Uh, oh yeah yeah he would
0: yeah, incredibly effective, uh, incredibly unpleasant, brilliantly done. Right? I mean, that's the that's the thing about it. Is it? It's his powers for evil. That's exactly right. Like it is what it. And I'm a believer. You, Erica and Chip will know this from the Babylon Five uh, uh, episodes that I say that I like. Um, that I think if you're gonna if you're gonna go dark you need to actually go dark because if you go dark right. and then you kind of wimp out and you're like, Oh, but it's not really there's a, it's okay. I feel like if you're going to go there, go, go all the way. And I will salute you and say, yeah, if it's going to be awful, make it truly awful. Well, <laughs>
6: good job. Parlin
0: Ellison. This one is <laughs> as dark as
6: it gets. The last line of the story, you know, is, is the title of the, is, yeah. is the title of the story. And yeah. there's a, it, it, yeah. there's a reason for it. Because yep.
2: his creator, t- his his tormentor slash, d- d- uh, you know architect, has taken away even his ability to express his hatred. He doesn't even have that anymore. It's it's the most profound disimpersoning of somebody you could do.
3: And he has said this about several stories and several of the ones we actually read that you know he he's proud of the fact that he's an atheist and this is he loves you know for all of Gene Roddenberry's oh we're fighting God and God isn't real. Yeah, it's just sort of, you know, shadow boxing. Harlan Ellison writes stories where it's like, no, God is evil if there is one, and I don't <laughs> think there is one. And he just goes all in. So not, not assigned at Scott's uh, Catholic school. Uh,
0: it was not no uh, and yet still i'm an atheist who knew thanks jesuits The uh,
4: uh, i also think Carl ellison might not be a fan of technology just a little
0: bit
1: no he is not a fan there,
0: there's a lot of dystopian you know anti-computer anti-ai stuff in science fiction it is a weird thing that runs through a lot of science fiction as you gotta watch out for that dehumanizing technology
2: and now let me write a story about robots yeah well so let's 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 move on
0: um from the, the horrors of uh of I have no mouth and I must scream and move on. And I actually I want to tackle two stories together because they are so similar. The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World from nineteen sixty nine and The Man Who Rode Christopher Columbus Ashore from nineteen ninety one. They're both, as we just said, kind of these vignettes. Um christopher columbus it is a a whole bunch of one paragraph blobs from as as we watch a an essentially all-powerful being making changes and affecting things or not or taking the day off um in the in in, uh, on various days and sometimes stepping into a different time and all of that and then at the end he basically gets in trouble with the head office and is uh put on probation and 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 takes a different name and that's the story and it's an opportunity to see him like at one point he uh, he saves a uh what is it, is a prostitute in in London by giving her antibiotic which Mm -hmm. saves her so she doesn't Mm -hmm. die of venereal disease which allows her to have a, live a life and have a child and that child is important in the future and this all happens in the space of like five paragraphs. Um, So, that's that one and then Beast that shot love of the heart of the world which I think is a more effective story. It it Mm -hmm. certainly, like, the, the, the blobs are larger. They're not like one paragraph blobs and the idea there... Which, I and I hadn't read this one before, is brilliant because it's kind of like there are beings that live at the center of the universe who have decided that insanity fills the universe and they have a solution, which is to purify where they are at the expense of everywhere else. And that has these ramifications that kind of lead to all these completely awful and weird things happening, including on our planet and including in the far future in halfway across the galaxy or whatever. Um, So interesting stuff uh in- interesting stuff on, on both cases erica what did you what did you make f- of these two
5: uh, these are my two least favorite of yeah. all the ones that we read i just mm-hmm. i don't dig the the whole vignette thing um too much especially when there's not like an actual narrative the uh the columbus one had had a, the through line because it was one character that's doing all this stuff but i was just like that's the one where i just felt like look at me i'm showing off i can write all these pretty pretty things but it does nothing and it really did nothing for me at least the beast that shouted love at the heart of the world there was there was a narrative and you were sort of um unearthing things that were ha- that were happening and it was, it was like by the end you understand a whole lot more about what was right. happening at the beginning
0: right. by the by the end you're like oh i get this whereas in the other one it's yes. like oh okay
5: mm-hmm. yeah that's like <laughs> i i thought at the beginning of columbus that it was going to be a journey of discovery. And it really wasn't. It was just a journey. At least the beast that shouted love at the heart of the world was a journey of discovery. And while I still, like, didn't particularly dig it, I I, I agree that it was crafted very well and and does what it sets out to do masterfully. It's, It's a more
3: circular story, but it all comes together, whereas Christopher Columbus is sort of a straight line and it just gets to a place and stops.
5: Yeah. yeah it's a straight yeah. line to nowhere <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> i had never even heard of that story before and it's the only one that doesn't have a wikipedia page right well wow. it's, it's
3: it's one of the late era
0: stories it's, yeah those. it's a latter and, day ellison and it did mm-hmm. get kind of put it in the best american Short story so i thought i would put it in but it does in reading it in for this podcast it does feel like almost like a riff on or outtakes from the beast that shouted love at the heart of the world
6: in the beast that shouted love's favor, it's it's got a structure. It's like a myth. It's like a myth of how evil came into the world. Yeah, kind that's of totally yeah, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, so I enjoyed it at that level. Um, I I was lost a little bit uh, at the center of the uh, crosswind or whatever when uh, I I I had trouble following exactly what was happening exactly how insanity was being cleared out but i got enough of it that uh i got i eventually got the point but i did but i did like that it was a how evil came into the world kind of myth and as as for as for the man who wrote columbus i I found that more pleasant to read because the vignettes were actually were actually kind of clever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I
1: enjoyed the vignettes individually, but I didn't feel like they added up to that much.
6: Exactly. Right. They both work right. and not work in 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 mm-hmm. different ways.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you guys enjoyed those vignettes. <laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: it is. I mean, again, I, I have to say as a uh, as a uh, an appreciator of uh, freelance writers and trying to find things to sell like. It's like, this is a, uh, for journalists, this is your notes column, your reporter's notebook column where it's like, I got a yeah. whole bunch of stuff here and I can't really make a story out of it. But I could like stick them all together and say, "Here's a bunch of stuff," and that's what he did. It feels like, especially with Christopher Columbus, not to say that they aren't well written, but it's almost like Harlan Ellison had like five or, or ten sheets of paper that he would put through his typewriter, and he'd like written a really good paragraph, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't know where to go with this," and then he just kind of took those and put them together and said, "I well, got." This it. is where
2: you can see. This is where you, this is where you can see the through line from Ellison to Neil Gaiman because when. Um, You read the Sandman series. And by the way, I really feel like we need to do an incomparable episode on the Sandman comic series. Um, When you read the Sandman comic series, there's one plot where um, a writer has actually kidnapped one of the muses and Mm -hmm. is keeping her enslaved so that he can gradually eke out his, his three penny opera type stories. And, this muse happens to be, I believe, the ex-girlfriend of the king of dreams. And so when he finds his ex and liberates her, he's like, all right, you know what? You're getting all this inspiration at once. And what follows are a series of panels where there's all these ideas, these glorious little half formed vignettes and intriguing idea, these ideas that seem intriguing, but are never developed. And boom, they all get dropped there. And then one of, and then one of Gaiman's big, uh, methods for characterizing, uh, in new, new people in, in his comics is to drop in a series of anecdotes or to drop in a series of sentences like, oh, 10 million years ago, there were eight people walking the earth who are still alive today, and on and on it goes. <laughs> and again, you can draw a through line from the two stories that you selected straight to um, the habit that some writers have of, here is this shadowy backstory and these seemingly random things that aren't in fact random, but are a part of a larger design I won't actually show you the design. I'll show you like a small fraction of the design and you can feel feelings about it, but I'm done with <laughs> my story. It's now. short story. It's, cut, it's over. <laughs> yeah. And so I actually feel like Flashback that's kind of a cheat.
6: in the Highlander movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean,
2: like the, I feel like it's kind of a cheap. and I realize it's a short story. And the whole point to a short story is it's supposed to be a short, sharp arc and, it has it, all of the details are supposed to contribute to it in some way and make you feel your feelings in, in, in a very intense period of time. But both of these stories feel kind of lazy to me because what he just did was, I have this great list of ideas. I'm really not going to elaborate on too many of them. And um, something about time travel yeah. and um, <laughs> something about the origins of evil, but it's necessary for balancing the good of the universe. And what it comes down to is this is a writer who really has a hard time with the idea that anything outside of himself could possibly influence anything ever and as
0: a short story writer i mean it's good that he's a short story writer because even writing short fiction sometimes you get the sense with ellison that he is already on to the next thing like a lot of his stories end abruptly and on one level it's like a saturday night live sketch i would much rather when you're not feeling it (laughs) that you just or i'd rather you do what monty python would do and just be like that's it we're done um rather than just belabor it but ellison definitely you get the sense like this is only four pages. pages long and he lost interest three and a half pages and so he stopped (laughs) he's an idea machine
2: i can't decide if it's good for us or bad for us that doesn't tweet
0: (laughs) i think it's very good it's good for the world (laughs) that would talk about putting insanity in the universe (laughs) wow Uh, we don't we don't need that mentioning neil gaiman and this is jumping out of order now but paladin the lost hour That's the one that I read, and I thought, oh my god, this is, like, I can see why Neil Gaiman loves Harlan Ellison, because I can see in Paladin of the Lost Hour, I see um, American Gods, and I see... Um, mm-hmm. the graveyard book <laughs> especially <Yeah. laughs> it's yes. the Ocean yes. there.
5: I actually met Neil Gaiman because of Harlan Ellison really yeah I went to see Harlan Ellison speak at uh, when I was in college in Madison and uh, Neil Gaiman was living in Ma- in, uh, in Wisconsin at the time and had driven down to see it I had no idea who Neil Gaiman was but one of my roommates <gasps> loved him so he introduced me to this you know he, he introduced me to this guy in like you know his leather jacket and I was just like hi nice to meet you and then I just completely ignored him and went back over to watching <gasps> harlan ellison and that very night that very night my roommate set in my hands the first issue of the sandman um, and my life has never been the same
2: erica i think you broke me <laughs> Sorry, Lisa.
0: Hi, nice to meet you neil gaiman anyway harlan ellison back to harlan so Paladin of the lost hour um is a story about a guy who's got a magic pocket watch and he's very old and he's sad because his wife died and he is the guardian of this basically it's the hour that stands between the universe and the apocalypse for reasons there's calendars and time and whatever it doesn't right. it's fine he it's pokes. all mystic and weird um, and he is at a graveyard and he's going to be attacked by people graveyard book see there it is um, uh, all things about <laughs> graveyards involve Harlan Ellison nope that's also not true um, and he's uh he's attacked and there's he asked to be saved and this guy saves him and they become friends and he realizes that this is who he's going to pass the uh the responsibility of protecting the one hour uh, uh but that stands between us all and and uh and the end of the universe and again i described that story it's kind of not about that it's kind of about the relationship between the old man and the young man and finding out what their 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 damage is in their lives and how it might be repaired um and and not only did it remind me of neil gaiman but it is um I think, a remarkably sweet story, especially given the other stories that we read. It was yes. sort of such a relief to be like, oh, yes, yes, it's a nice old man and a nice young man, and they're both sad, but they both have, are responsible, and it was a, it was a nice thing to uh, to read after some of these others.
1: I love that story because it is a nice story, and there's a few nice stories that he's written, but the majority of them are Harlan Ellison stories.
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> One, and this, when we we were trying to figure out a list of stories this was like the one absolute i no negotiation i wanted this story because it is so different i i found this story incredibly sweet
6: um i found it incredibly coherent mm-hmm. yeah. and i think <laughs> yes, I, it's very and and, yes. I, and i i came away from it probably the most satisfied as sort of a reading experience but it didn't feel Ellison enough for me. After all, after everything after everything else that we'd read, it felt like he was doing almost a different genre of story.
0: Eighties Ellison right. is
6: very different from sixties Ellison, and I would say that it, that's
0: after a, he's got after he's in that good marriage. And, and as somebody mm-hmm. who whose first Ellison book was Shatterday, so I guess late seventies mm-hmm. and early eighties Ellison, um, he he drops a lot of his sixties counterculture. I'm going to be really weird here, man. I can get away with it. And And is more (laughs) locked down with reality. So even Shatterday, Mm -hmm. which is a magic... And I almost had us read that because I really do love that story. It is a magic realism kind of story. It's about a guy who calls his own home by accident and he answers and he's talking to himself and the, how do you get out of that one and Ellison manages to write his way out of that one and that's a tough yeah. story but it's a really good story and it is coherent in ways that the, the stories from the 60s are not so Chip I, I feel like I maybe have given you a little bit of a a, an, a, a skewed view of Ellison because I think at the Ellison yes. of the late 70s <laughs> and through the 80s is more like the author of Paladin of the Lost Hour maybe not this sweet most of the time mm-hmm. but, but more yeah. coherent like this and less kind of riffing on weird psychedelic stuff like, like did I just uh, some blow those, your 60s mind stuff. with the
5: tyranny <laughs> yeah. of yep. the clock I felt like this story had one thing that a lot of the others were lacking and that's characters like actual mm-hmm. yes. characters yes. who yes. had lives and backstories and who interacted with each other on the level of, of people and I just mm-hmm. loved watching these two people talk to each other and, and the fact that he never actually tells you which one is black and which one is white it's right. just that you know. I'll look right. at the color of your skin and my skin. And I kept going back and forth being like, which is which? I don't know.
3: It's it's one of the few stories. I mean, as as much as I enjoy other stories and, as, you know, and they're filled with mind blowing ideas. This is one of the few where you really feel these people lived outside the boundaries of the story.
2: Well, it's the first time that you see trauma and it's not from a selfish, how dare these people right. kind, <laughs> kind of way, because at the very end when he um gifts the man the ability to say goodbye to his uh fellow soldier and it's a way to both demonstrate an awesome responsibility and say thanks and to help ease someone else's pain it's probably one of the few unselfish acts that you're that that we saw in any of these stories at all yeah. you yeah. know it's 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 him actually expressing some faith in the human character, which is really rare for an Ellison story. <laughs> the other five <laughs> stories
0: we read are all about some form of immortality. I would argue. I mean, you could, we even Pen Harlequin said the TikTok man. I could maybe argue that, but uh, this is a story about mortality, and I think maybe that's why eighties Ellison. And the Angry Candy, and uh, which is like a late eighties, early nineties, and Shatterday yeah, and era of Ellison slippage. and Slip. Yeah, th- that that era. Yeah. Um, I think maybe that's why I like that era better too. Is that not only is it yes. less I'm going to blow your mind, but it's also like he's not always angry. Sometimes he's sad because he has come. He he had. I think he had some heart attacks. I, he he yes. he. Well, the yes. people that
2: he knew and loved started dying. Yeah, and it no longer was tragic and taken too young. It was like, yeah, this is what happens when you hit your 40s and 50s. So You, you know? get
0: regret and mourning and mortality, and and it's not all just sort of like raging against the machine like literally with the, I have no mouth and I must scream um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I think that helps because like the in, in Angry Candy there's a, the last story is called The Function of Dream Sleep and it's just a it's like about it's about morning. that's all it's about and it's very sad but it's also very beautiful and it's one of those things of like oh you know this is the other side of Harlan Ellison where he's kind of gotten over his rage for the moment and what's left is the sadness and that's that's this story too it's beautiful and it's nice and life goes on i mean that's his the, the point with 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 a uh, paladin of the lost hour is that it, it, one story is over but life goes on and that that is also that bittersweet uh, kind of feeling that the story gets it's a, this is a great story i love this story
1: um he also wrote a story that i loved about he when he the character is a little boy and his aunt goes to see the live taping of a television show, and she oh, has a very laugh. distinctive God, laugh. She gets I on the laugh track, story. right? Yeah, it's and, yeah, laugh track. It's just I such love love a great yeah. story, so much. and it's yeah. And in I love every, every show that, one
0: too. that he watches into the future. He can hear her laughing,
1: and he knows that yeah. she's being forced to laugh at terrible television. And he mm-hmm. sets out to rescue her. I wonder if and that it's... came from an
0: anecdote. I wonder if he met somebody mm-hmm. who in 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 the TV industry who said, "I hear I hear my laugh or someone's laugh all the time because it, get, it gets reused." Right. And he was like, right. "Let
2: me write that down." Jeremy Wilhelm <laughs> is really angry that his uncle's scream is used in every movie. That can
0: become uh, because that that is actually a thing that that he, in his lengthy introductions he writes to all his books and all his stories, he will sometimes tell you the anecdote that led to him writing the story. Yeah. Like Jeff DS V. Which leads to
3: yes. Jeff
0: 5 which literally came out of him overhearing someone at Walter Koenig's house, I believe another Babylon Five connection yeah. <laughs> saying, "Oh Jeff is Jeff is five he's always five yeah. when they they said fine he 's fine he 's always fine mm-hmm. and he thought he 's always five. what if a child <laughs> that never grew up and was always five and thus we get Jeff, he is five and it, and and it is uh it is not a sweet nice story in the way it turns out although there's some (laughs) sweet stuff in it because it Mm -hmm. is about um, it is about a guy who is aging normally as a human being and then about (laughs) Jeffy who does not age and is always five and he's a childhood friend who um, he he is a fellow child with and then he's an older kid and then he's an adult and he's still five and Uh, so it's like how our relationship with people of different ages changes as we age Mm -hmm. which part of it and but it is also the horror of the parents who can never get to the point where their kids can take care of themselves and grow up and leave the house
1: He's going to be five forever, forever, and there are benefits to that. Like he has these, he can buy comic books that when that people stop publishing in the forties. Yeah, he has a
2: radio that listens to <laughs> old the radio shows. It's the time bubble around him. Yeah he's, yeah, he's in a time bubble, and 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 the, it's an it's it's wide enough where he can pull other people into it. But um I mean, the ending of the story just. Oh, it I breaks really it, heart. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Well, I recoiled too, cause it's, right. it's, it, well, it's another one where once again, you have a monstrous woman who, you know, pushes everything along cause, you know, his mother murders him. And, uh, she doesn't even have the courage to do it herself. She basically sets it up so that Jeffy kills, Jeffy kills himself. And, um, you know, I, I got to that point in the story and, I tried to remember that he had written with some compassion about the nightmare of living with a child who is five years old for 20 odd years. But at the end of it, I was like, it was a small five-year-old child who'd just been beaten bloody and she left him to electrocute himself. And I just keep stumbling over that part. I you just know? take
0: this as a Twilight Zone episode. And, and I mean, mm-hmm. and I don't blame the mom. Actually, I feel like the mom is the one who's brave um that the father will just let this go on forever and she's like this has to end and she does this yeah. terrible thing she kills her child yeah. because they're being yeah. they are in this twilight zone scenario where they are going to be trapped there forever with a 5 year old. Yeah.
3: I mean it's it's kind of half uh walking distance in terms of nostalgia yeah. and you know going backwards and Craving, craving your childhood, uh, but it's crossed p- crossed with uh, it's a good life where it's 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 not even an intentionally monstrous child, no. but it's a mm-hmm. child who is holding them hostage. It's a, a child
0: way. who's monstrous in the way that all children are monstrous at certain ages, mm-hmm. and yes. except it lasts forever. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. I thought about this story a lot when my kids were little. It was like, oh <laughs>
1: yes, oh, <laughs> yeah.
0: oh yes, you know, because it's just like, yeah. oh, thank goodness this ends. Oh no, Jeffy is five. He's always five.
2: Well, except the thing is, is, if you have multiple children, you think about those people who have, you know, many many children. Someone in that house is always five for like a decade or more. It's not so, you know, know.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. So, so there's that experience too.
6: This story plays a lot with um, with nostalgia and yeah, it does. Uh, and nostalgia and nostalgia runs through a bunch of the stories that uh we reread here the um the ir- the, irri- the irritation with how uh the how the wor- world is changing in the future and, uh, and and things like that and i got sucked in to the i'm i'm the sort of person who has trouble letting go of uh you know uh, i i would love to see new tenth doctor stories all the time i would love to see you know um it is so seductive the notion of being able to hear new old things <laughs> right yeah uh, mm-hmm. and and that that is so powerful uh and and that just sort of sucked me in and then we get the stephen king turn where uh oh no he's going to re- everything's going to be ruined and this poor kid is going to suffer i was on team donnie and i was i was I was able to recognize the sort of existential horror that the uh, that the parents were going through mm-hmm. with their chi- with their child never never evolving. On the other hand, Donnie is fully in the right, I think, when he's like, oh, "Look what look what you've let this do to you." And this is a, this is the mm-hmm. sort of thing that parents of children with disabilities this is stuff that yeah they this is stuff that yeah. they this is their life adjust to this is yeah. this is their mm-hmm. life this is yeah. their reality and um in the end um uh, in, in the end i i do i do agree with lisa you know uh it's 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 sort of a it's sort of a monstrous, awful end for everyone concerned. Well, I mean,
0: I don't think anybody's yeah. I don't think anybody's debating that it isn't a monstrous, awful end. Donnie is <laughs> yeah. the is the right. hero of this story. Uh, that That is, but I, I I appreciate the fact that it ends monstrously because I feel like that's just, yeah. that's what he's trying, that's that's the story he's telling, is that it's a Twilight Zone episode, it's not going to end It's a horrible well.
2: story
4: that ends horribly. I, I'm not such a big fan of Donnie, I will say,
0: because <laughs> I feel like
4: he's using D uh, just to, as this little, kind uh, connection to a world that he remembers fondly mm-hmm. and he is just uh uh you know uh, it's a creepy for this uh, guy to be walking <laughs> around with a five-year-old uh mm-hmm. and then just using him to you know get those comic books that he remembers from his time and remember when the radio played cool serials well my little friend jefty who's five years old uh, i can uh,
0: go to his house and listen to the radio so yeah. i feel like uh, donnie has some issues too well he is
2: he That's is still hanging bad. around with his, point. Yeah. with his point with
0: this five-year-old friend from when he was five it is it is but but he's yeah, also it's the only new friend. five-year-old friend
2: yeah yeah but is that really any different than friending someone on facebook you haven't talked to since middle school well, it's a little yes, different
0: it's a little <laughs> yeah it's a little different I, actually um that that the nostalgia thing uh it's funny mm-hmm. that struck me too about this which is i think it's actually uh a trait I really don't like in Harlan Ellison is that he plays that card a lot which is uh you don't remember how it was back when we had the pop culture item and weird product you could buy in a store and restaurant that they don't have of a kind they don't have anymore where something is automated or there's a waitress on skates or something like he'll do that and he does it in these stories and he does it a lot in a lot of
3: stories
1: Do you think that Back to the Future has ruined Harlan Ellison for you? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well in and- if you think about it, Jeffy is five is closer to the radio era it's nostalgic for than we are to Jeff D is five. Thanks, Dave. Feeling old now. Yeah. And and what I, are we nostalgic for? We're nostalgic for Tron. Hey, remember when right?
2: Dawson's Creek came out? Oh, Dawson's Creek. I People are getting nostalgic nostalgia. over Dawson. Okay, Dawson's good. Creek now,
3: yeah, boy. If I
4: could find a five year old to hang out with, so I could watch <laughs> Dawson's Creek all the time, that'd be awesome.
2: I have a seven year old. If you'd like to start, yeah, um, I could
0: I, I mean, the nostalgia is. Um, is interesting it just this time i I, there was a lot of it and i was like oh man more 50s nostalgia here but um but in this in
3: this it's not a good thing
0: the, the reason the nostalgia is here is because Jeff Jephthys 5 is ultimately, again, to, to break the, I'm going to step out of the story for a minute, it's about losing your own childhood, right? I mean, Donnie, yeah, Donnie, yeah. Donnie, Donnie oh, was a kid when this was all going on and he lost it but there's this representation of his, his, his childhood friend is literally still a child listening to the things that he liked as a child that don't exist anymore except for this little kid. It is I, I mean, I, that part of this story, that's what, one of the reasons I love this story is it's kind of brilliant. Brilliant. It is a literal representation of losing your childhood and how hard it is to let go, which is why he, a grown man is hanging around with a five-year-old kid listening to a radio serial, because
3: and, he can't and let go. And that is, I mean, it's not nostalgia just for nostalgia's sake. I mean, it, it's kind of clear that that's also not healthy for Donnie, yeah. right? It's not well, he a, good has a terrible
2: childhood. It's sketched out in like two or three sentences. But this is a guy who had a pretty bad childhood. And so when he runs into Jefty and he is having an amazing, everlasting childhood without those complications. And it's it, it seductive. Se- yeah. It's intoxicating. Oh, yeah. I, I find that story so, so difficult now in a way that I didn't the first few times I read it um
3: the first few times i read it i didn't have children
2: yeah exactly now I, do. Yeah. I hate that i hate that this I, I hate the parent effect when it comes to reading things and watching oh, movies God, and so yeah. on and so forth it has it has it ruins ruined more everything. things for yes it does it does yeah. like if you thought the sleeplessness and paying for childcare and rearranging your life were the big drawbacks of parenting no no you want to know what the big drawback of parenting is every time there's a kid in peril on screen like everything in your body clenches up and you resent the screenwriters and you resent yourself for the reaction that you're so having. So congratulations and you're to like, the half of the yeah.
0: panel that doesn't have kids, is what yeah. we're saying. <laughs> Thank
2: you. Yeah. Yes. Good choices. Good choices.
0: <laughs> All right. So, um, our Ellison newbies, Scott and and Chip, what's your overall? I, I, I want I want the overall wrap up of this experience, and uh, whether you whether you uh, appreciated the experience, what you got out of it, and hmm. if you might read more. Scott, what do you think? Um i i certainly appreciated it uh harlan ellison
4: is a very talented writer as i said uh i think that i enjoyed uh based on the conversation here i enjoy early ellison because i like my writing to be uh did i blow your mind uh and less (laughs) oh look a trickily sweet fable
3: uh i recommend (laughs) Deathbird stories for you check that one out oh yes strange wine too strange wine sure uh because uh you know paladin
4: uh of the uh what is lost it called? Hour. The lost hour just it didn't do anything for me i thought it was kind of boring you don't like neil gaiman either right i don't see uh <laughs> uh it's a <laughs> it's it's fine. People are allowed to like
0: different things. Uh, it's all right. so I said those things make it uh, makes sense, is what I'm saying, because that that feels very the much the same kind. Stephen Stephen King, Harlan Ellison, and Neil Gaiman have some connectivity, I think. There, <laughs> yes. so you not liking them yes. makes sense
2: in that way
0: but the early ellison yeah you might you might like some of that mind-blowing psychedelic early ellison in in fact i've read some of it uh, for this
4: very podcast and i enjoyed it quite a bit (sighs) so there you go uh and i do think it's a fascinating look at i enjoy looking at writers uh from you know 40, 50 years ago. And just looking at how, uh, you know, Lisa said this earlier that, you know, Harlan Ellison's influence cannot be overstated. So uh, seeing kind of the, 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 the struts of modern science fiction uh, being laid out by Harlan Ellison and what people are doing with what he kind of thought up is uh, kind of on a, a meta level, very interesting and satisfying to me as a reader as
0: well. And the short stories too. You could always, you could say like, I will read a, something by Harlan <laughs> Ellison every month and you know, what it'll take you like 10 minutes a month to do that so well, and that's the other that thing hard. i'm not a huge short story fan so yeah i probably
4: won't go uh and read a lot more of harlan ellison just because i feel like uh you just yeah. don't get enough it's like oh look at this cool thing i thought of and it's and, over uh, and now we're done yep. <laughs> i'm like i want to know more harlan all right uh-huh. uh, and he's like i don't care <laughs> how about this other thing about a walrus that's a computer and we all live in it and uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's, it's a story. and it dies horribly story checks
6: out Chip what about you? for Ellison to have been so influential on so many of the writers that I'm really into for you know it was way past time for me to actually encounter him in someplace other than video essays on sci-fi vortex <laughs> it, it was a great experience reading all six of these uh, I didn't like all six of them but um they, they they were definitely either challenging or the least challenging of them the paladin was actually in, in in a lot of ways the most enjoyable one for me so uh i got a lot out of it but i look at the i, I look at the list of short stories on harlan and i still have no idea where i would go given the range of stuff and that he does and the range of writing styles it took me a reading list from you to (laughs) get to the point where i felt like okay i think i kind of get harlan ellison now um i don't think i would i don't think i would feel confident just plunging in and picking random short stories from him because they're all over the place and he's so inventive that i'm Pretty sure that I would randomly pick up something that I would be hideously disturbed by and would not appreciate him having invented. So (laughs) I, I I will continue to need help. Uh, going through the harlan Ellison over maybe uh, 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 maybe a- a- ask ask my friends for you know recommendations you liked this one how about this one I and wish just I go had through it
0: a go-to book recommendation that I would say is foolproof but I don't so I, I you know i I keep recommending shatterday and angry candy to people
5: and I always say uh, approaching oblivion and I always say strange wine <laughs> yep <laughs>
6: and and this illustrates my problem.
5: Right, so angry Candy,
0: shatterday those are the kind of like mid mid 80s Uh, you know 80s and early 90s uh approaching oblivion and strange wine are earlier so that also factors into sort of like
6: what what era of ellison you want to get but there's a bunch of good ones yeah but i'm but i'm really grateful for this because as we vividly demonstrated at the beginning of the podcast the legend of harlan ellison at this point almost overshadows the work of harlan ellison mm-hmm. certainly right. in certain fan right. circles anyway yeah. and um it was certainly a barrier to me getting into it and uh there's actual work here and that's it's it's worth exploring
2: chip if i were you i'd read his i'd read the, i'd read his anthologies i would read dangerous visions and again dangerous visions and get more of a feel for how he writes and what turns him on and the, and the, yeah and right because those the,
0: those are those are th- books he edited that are short stories by other people Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so it gives you a feel for more of him. And that might help you divine or or weave your way through if you wanted to continue the the pursuit of Ellison studies.
6: Yeah, I think I I think I don't want to know him better. I think I'd want (laughs) to know his works better. Right,
2: I've, and I would argue that he is his works, though you know.
6: Bottom line, I think
0: is is I think think it's kind of unfortunate that he's such an outsized character that you lose sight of the work because yeah. it, reading these again reminded me he is yes he is a very interesting person he is he has a lot of ideas sometimes so much so that he just sweeps them all together and says here's a story out of my the, the shavings of other ideas <laughs> I had but bottom line number one thing about him his prose is spectacular. He is, yeah. I, I'd say he's probably my favorite writer in terms of style, whether it's a newspaper, like a movie review to a short story, to a polemic op-ed, uh, all of that stuff, you can hear his voice and it's very mm-hmm. clear. He knows what he's doing. You can tell that it's him. And it's like that, Even even when it's a story I don't like, I like the words, and that's why somebody said earlier, "pretty words." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't really like the story. It's like, yeah, that happens, but the the words are always pretty, which I which is not always the case. He's he's very talent. That is a, a unique talent. All right. Well. There we go. Some people read some Harlan Ellison short stories, and we talked about it for a long time, and it's good. We hadn't talked about him before, and um, it makes me want to... I have left The Essential Ellison on my bedside table so I can read some more short stories from
3: Harlan Ellison.
2: Because you don't ever want to sleep again. Sometimes you can't sleep, Lisa.
3: You can't. If if you want to hold like you want to get your baby to go to sleep and you want to hold it down, just put the essential Ellison on top. Hold <laughs> yeah. them down for if, days. If I have a bug oh, yeah.
0: and there's a bug flying around, I got the essential Ellison there. Mm-hmm. It's going to take care of it. I think we've established that. All right, God, I would like to thank my panel. Um, our panel was six. It's always six. Uh, Lisa Schmizer, oh. thank you for being here. <laughs>
2: Thank you for having me.
0: David J. Lohr, thank you. Thank you.
3: I'm just happy to have been here. Scott McNulty, goodbye. Yeah, Jeff, he got what he deserved. <laughs> oh,
0: no. <laughs> oh.
1: Yeah, just send
3: all your letters to Scott. Chip Sutter,
6: thank you. Thank you for being responsible for me, Jason. Oh.
0: <laughs> uh, reference acknowledged. Rias Hall, thank you. And thank you. And Erica Ensign, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, You met Neil Gaiman and didn't know who he was.
5: <laughs> so, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to... I want to close with the last line from uh, Harlan Ellison's introduction to the Pinnacle Doctor Who books. The pleasure is all mine and all yours, kiddo.
0: Very (laughs) nice. And uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. I have been your host, Jason Snell. We will see you next time. Mermi, mermi,